Well, today, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 5. As you're opening to Matthew chapter 5, uh, of course, if you're brand new today, if you're just tuning in, we're walking through the, the greatest sermon ever, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the title of today's message, if you're going to look for it or if you're going to share it with somebody, is Have You Heard? That's what uh, you're going to see that over and over in the text today. But I want to ask you, starting out with this, have you ever experienced something called a dilemma? Does anybody know what a dilemma is? What is a dilemma? It's a, it's a question. It's a conundrum. It's a mystery wrapped in an enigma, right? It's this idea of two opposing ideas that we can pick from. That's why it's a dilemma. Well, there is a famous trilemma. Perhaps you've heard of it. A trilemma, if a dilemma is two, a trilemma is three, right? There's a Scottish Christian preacher named John Duncan in 1796 through 1870 who originally kind of came up with this idea in his publication, and I'm probably going to say this wrong because I think it's Latin, the colloquia peripatia. I don't know what that means. Uh, later, another theologian, Watchman Nee, who you may be familiar with, with him in 1936 in his book, Normal Christian Faith, and then uh, said it again, and then it was popularized by a very famous theologian, C.S. Lewis, in 1952, his book, Mere Christianity, which, by the way, if you have not read Mere Christianity, I recommend it. It's not an overly long book, and so take it with you on vacation somewhere or just work through it on your own. But this trilemma that C.S. Lewis popularized is you have to make a choice when it comes to Jesus. He is either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. I know you've heard me mention that from time to time before. This is a quote from him in his work out of Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, speaking of Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. He said, that's the foolish thing that you can do. You can accept him as a good moral teacher, but not acknowledge his claim. He says, this is foolish, and the reason this is foolish to make that statement is this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not even intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he is neither a lunatic nor a fiend And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And that's from his book, Mere Christianity, pages 55 and 56. And so this trilemma that he's talking about us here is we must make this choice. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Well, in today's text... Jesus, as he begins his ministry, right, he's called those people with him. He's given us the blessings of what it means to be a member of the kingdom through these Beatitudes. Study over this, please. Don't just hear it Sunday and then let it go. The rest of the week, I hope that you're reading over this Sermon on the Mount. You will be deeply blessed. But as he goes into this section, 
sections, uh, verses 13 through 48, that we're going to cover this morning. He is going to challenge these Jews. He's going to quote Old Testament. He is going to quote God's word, and he's going to say, you have heard it was said, but I tell you. He's going to speak in authority. He's going to speak in such a level of authority that in the end of this Sermon on the Mount, it says in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7, that the people marveled at him because he spoke, spoke with such authority. Not as somebody who is just simply regurgitating the Bible, but rather somebody who is giving new and authoritative insight on what the Bible already says. In essence, making himself equal to the scriptures themselves, which is the very word of God. And so he's going to give you, he's going to give me a reality check of the kingdom. So again, the title of today's message is, Have You Heard? I hope after today you will say yes. But before we get into the text, let's pray. Oh God in heaven, grant that we would be fully in your service this day. That all our thoughts, words, and deeds would resound with your glory, as well as a good example to all mankind. That as they, the world, as they would see the good works that we produce, that they would glorify you and your name. God, we praise you that you have not only predestined, but called us to be members of your kingdom. And then as such, that you have provided for us in this text of Matthew, rules and regulations and standards. So we would ask that you would fill us with your spirit so that we might be increased in faith as well as knowledge. Enlighten our hearts and salt our speech that we might live in godly conversation and integrity of life. Lord, as you have spoken to your people centuries ago with authority, so you speak to us this day. Therefore, grant us your spirit of grace that we might joyfully be obedient to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Jesus starts right out with the Beatitudes, these blessings, and shortly thereafter then, whoops, there we go, I shut my cooker off. Um, Shortly thereafter, he sets the bar. Now, often in churches, we seem to set our own bars. We set bars as a pastor. I set my bar according to maybe other churches, according to maybe other pastors, according to other theologians whose works have blessed me in the past that I, that I read. Perhaps you come to church and you set your bar by me. You should not. That's a low bar. <laughs> or perhaps by others. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus set the bar for us. He sets the bar for all of us, and it's found right here in Matthew. And so as we read, he sets the bar, we're going to see that his standard is quite high. He starts in, uh, I'm going to start with us in 21 through 22. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he's quoting the Old Testament. This is what you've heard, and then this is his authority. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
There's a very interesting thing that's happening in our society today. I do not like to mix pulpit and politics. I do like, however, to point you to Scripture to allow that to form your political viewpoint, your moral compass, your worldview, because if you claim to be a Christian and you have any standard of worldview other than God's Word, then you're wrong. Or you may not be a Christian. I will allow you to decide. Here's what I'm talking about. Here's where I'm going at. There's a very famous case that, is being, that has been decided, the Floyd Chauvin case. I know you've heard about it, unless you live under a rock. But it's this idea of justice. See, he goes on here to say, and there's a lot of people that are very angry about it either way. And I don't really care where you fall on it, to be honest with you. I mean, I care because I love you. But I don't care in the scheme of eternity because I want to ask you this. Murder's obviously wrong, but how many of us this week called someone in our hearts and in our minds a fool? Because if we want to talk about having somebody on trial, if we want to talk about justice, if we want to talk about appeasement or any of those things, that's fine and good for us to look at things like the Floyd Chauvin case, wherever you come down on that is inconsequential when it is you who will be standing before the Almighty Judge and who will have to answer for this bar, the bar that Jesus set. He says, obviously, if you murder, you're going to be held accountable to judgment. But he says, that's what you've read. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that this is part of the Ten Commandments, right? Maybe you don't know which number it is. That's okay. You can refresh yourself. It's in Exodus. You can find it there. You could probably even Google it until they take it down because it'll be offensive to somebody, right? All the murderers out there are feeling offended. But he says here, you shall not murder. That's what you've heard, but I'm going to tell you this. The bar is higher than that. The standard of righteousness, the standard of holiness, the standard of your standing before God, what he will judge you on is not simply did you murder somebody, but have in your heart and in your mind, have you even called someone A fool. Now, we don't tend to call people foolish that often nowadays. Maybe you call them stupid, or ugly, or pathetic, or snowflake, or millennial. Synonymous, right? No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I'm a millennial, so I can say that. It's okay. But what he goes on to often there, and you read it in the context, all right? So this is your homework. I'm only going to cover part of this. It's your job to follow up. You should be a Berean. You should be reading God's Word. But he does say there that If this is where our hearts are at, we can't even really worship. So let me ask you this. This week, have you had a time where in your heart or in your mind you felt angry with somebody and you've maybe even under your breath or in your heart or in your mind said something to them that would have been classified as under this standard calling them a fool? Because if you have not dealt with that, the Bible says that your worship is tainted. Jesus says, leave your sacrifice at the altar and then go and make restoration with that individual, then come back and worship. David puts it this way, the sacrifice you desire, Lord, are the sacrifices of a broken and contrite heart. And he tells us in verse 26 of this section that the people who do this, it says make that restitution before you go to the judge, because if you don't and you go to the judge, he's going to put you in jail, and you will stay in jail until you have paid the last penny. 
Now, they didn't have pennies back then. They had different forms of payment. And the form of payment that they would use back then, this would be like 1 64th of a day's wages. So for us, a penny, the smallest amount. And so for any of us, any of your brothers and sisters, any people you see on Facebook, stay off Facebook, (laughs) but any people who are on there who you deal with, who are upset about judgment, about this trial, dealing with anger, understand that the bar is not just set at worldly justice, whether you feel like that was served or not in the Chauvin trial, whatever. That the bar is set with, where is your heart? Where is your mind? And that bar and that authority is continued through the section. So we're going to cover through them. The first was anger. The next is lust. You see that in 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, right? Another one of those commandments. You've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent, ladies, that does not mean you cannot be found guilty of this. You just change that for you. But I say to you, everyone who looks at any other human being is how I might modernize this for you so that nobody feels left out, I guess, right? But you've heard those said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, Jesus says that the bar is not just physical intimacy, but rather even the ideology of intimacy with someone. It says you've already committed adultery with your heart. Does anybody alive, is anybody here old enough to remember 1998? Okay. Do you know where I'm going with this? Oh, Billy boy and Miss Lewinsky, right? I did not have sexual relations with that woman, right? That's how I said it, with his little thumb. That's, I was young enough in 1998 to not have been, I didn't care about politics or anything until that happened. And then because it blew up, I was like, I was just at the age where I was like, this is crazy. The fact is, Bill, that that is not the standard. The fact is, Bill, the fact is, y'all, The adultery isn't just the standard. It's simply the motive, the mind behind it. And so he's chasing down purity of thought. And he asks us, Jesus asks us, and so I must ask you, how serious are we about this sin? Because it seems like on the Grammy Awards, on the Super Bowl, on UFC fights, on TikTok, that we are not serious about this. And we should be. He says, to cut off your hand, to gouge out your eye, lest you enter into hell completely. It is better to lose a part than to enter into hell completely. And in today's society, this is not just something that plagues men. But in churches, the statistics are staggering and sickening. He moves on. Farther, and and he goes to marriage and divorce, Matthew 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces a wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment. I know this is a sensitive topic for many of us who are in this room right now. And I want to stop right here and say this. I do not have time to exhaust this. If you want to talk about it more with me, I would love to do that. You can buy me coffee, or you can come to our house. My wife will make us coffee and a blueberry pie, right? Right? 
And we can talk more about this. What I simply want to state right now is this. That, divorce in general, is not what God wants for you or what he wants for marriage. And it's because marriage is to be a picture of Christ in the church. Okay? But we don't have time to get into all the nuances of this, so we're going to continue to move on. And I pray that you will just give me the grace to do that. Okay? Oaths. I hope, I, I hope that you're seeing then also that he's, he's moving into the verbal, not just the physical. So he's talking about murder, he's talking about adultery, now he's talking about even the words that we're speaking. So he covers the gamut for us. But in 5.33, he says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. I don't know about you guys, but I also grew up in the, in the time frame of pinky promises, right? Or the old spit handshake. Or if you're really serious with somebody or you're watching some kind of movie, you know, the blood brother thing, right? All of the above is, well, the last two are nasty. Pinky swears, I guess, are, those are pretty vanilla, right? but not according to God's word. What's your standard, right? Jesus says, even the pinky promise, y'all. No more pinky promise. He says, just simply in verse uh, 37, let your yes be yes or your no be no, right? Let simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. And back then what they would do is you may have heard this, this swear to God. I swear to God, I've never done this. Or I cross my heart, I hope to die. Or the even, you know, I swear on grandma's grave. All these different things. What God is simply saying, what Jesus is saying here, and what he proves out is, listen, you don't have any authority over anything. I mean, honestly. We have things that we're stewards of and we try to do our best, Right? But none of us really have authority, the kind of authority that Jesus has. Jesus has authority to speak, and then things are created. We, he says here in the text, we do not have authority even to tell our hair to turn gray or black, or for some of us to stay in or fall out, right? And he says, so we do not have that kind of authority, so why are we making oaths and swearing on these things? And it was very typical for during this time period, and you'll see this uh, later, where they would swear on things like the gold of the temple. Maybe you remember this story that Jesus had with them. Or if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see oaths that were taken and were broken. We just got through First and Second Samuel. Do you remember the oaths that, that Saul would take and then he would later break? And so he says the standard is really your integrity. The standard is your integrity in speech. That when you say you'll do something, you'll do it. Here's why this matters. If you claim to be a Christian and you have the blessing of the opportunity of meeting with somebody who isn't a Christian and you give them your word that something will happen, that you will do something, or, you'll, or, or a contract, Right? you enter into a contract with them, and you fail to follow through with your end of it, it not only reflects on you, but it reflects on the God you serve. Because people are not stupid. They have a general idea of what is right and what is wrong. They may not have any moral standard for why that exists. 
what they will very quickly point to you and say, I thought you were a Christian. Doesn't your God say? Which brings me then to retaliation. Which is the heading in the ESV Bible. If you're using another copy, it might have different headings. Retaliation is the heading here, 5, 38 through 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it seems to be in America, we're going back there, aren't we? If you're looking at the tweets that people are putting out, if you're looking at the news articles that are out, it seems to be that we are very quickly moving back to the Wild West. That if you do this to me, then I'm going to do that to you, and that's what makes justice. But is that what makes justice? Is it possible for people to escape justice in that realm? Because how do you really eye for an eye with some of these things? Is there ever really enough to satisfy that? And what he tells us is in the wickedness of our heart, we desire retaliation. Not even, not even always justice, although we couch it in that claim. Well, this is just justice. No, no, no. What, that, what you wanted is revenge. He says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So I don't have the answer for this, but I'm going to ask you some questions that you need to be thinking about and build biblical convictions on. What does that look like to you? What does that mean for you? Or or another question, what is an appropriate reaction to having evil perpetrated against us then? What does that mean for me as a man who is responsible for protecting my wife and my children? What does that mean for the service members who are in the military, for the police officers who are serving? What does that mean for our African-American community who are Christians? You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not even resist the one who is perpetrating evil against you. But instead, turn your other side, turn the cheek. You know that that phrase? So how does this apply to you today? And how should we respond? Well, Jesus tells us in the last section here, as he says, love your enemies. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't know the families of Chauvin and Floyd. I don't know them. But over this whole thing, I have wondered, as I'm preparing for this message, I have wondered if either side is actually praying for the other one. I I have wondered how many African-American churches out there are actually praying for the police in their community. I've wondered how many police officers are actually praying for the people that they serve. Now, of course, I don't expect non-Christians to pray. But if this is Christ's standard, and we claim the name Christian, how many of you guys remember those what would Jesus do bracelets? You guys remember those? Those were awesome, weren't they? 
and also a little cliche because you would often forget what Jesus would do even though you've got the bracelet on. I feel like that needs to be a reboot in our society today. I think this is possibly, arguably, maybe the most Christ-like action that Christ has talked about so far. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we see this most clearly demonstrated by Christ on the cross as he says, forgive them. And so in the end, I want for you to understand that as Jesus begins his ministry, he sets the bar. And the bar is not just come to church on Sunday, read your Bible a couple times during the week, say your prayers before bed and before meals. The standard is not be better than your neighbor. The standard is perfection. It says in Matthew 5, 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the measuring rod are all these things that he just gave us. You've heard it was said this. Society tells you this. The Old Testament tells you this. I'm here to clarify with what God really demands. And so Jesus puts himself out there as an authoritative picture of Scripture. He preaches the word, as these people have said, as nobody has ever heard it before, somebody who's preaching with authority, and so therefore he calls us to perfection. And so I would ask you this question. Don't raise your hand. I already know the answer. How many of you have fallen short of this standard this week? Did I hit you? Are all of us there then now? Because here's the fact of the matter. Myself, all of us, every single one of us, if you don't believe that, Romans tells us there are none who do good. There is none righteous. No, not one. Paul says every good deed that he has done is like filthy rags according to this standard because none of us have been perfect. And that's why he came. So all of this buildup of where you have failed this week, I want you to put at the foot of the cross. Because that's the standard, and we're not going to relax it. He tells us not even a jot, a tittle, an iota, which sounds weird to us, right? But if you know Hebrew punctuation, you would know that in the Greek and in the Hebrew, what he's talking about is the smallest. He's talking about the, colon, the, the, the comma or the semicolon. For somebody who struggles with grammar, I don't like that, but I understand it, Right? I never know, what do you do with a semicolon? Like, where does that even go? I don't even know how to use it. It's just weird. But this is why Jesus came. This is what he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to do what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot is going to pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He goes on, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, that is why you ought to encourage your friends 
and family, that they ought to attend a church. If they're not here in Allegan, then somewhere else. I'm not saying we're the best church. I'm just saying this. Whoever teaches from the pulpit to relax one of these and can stand up here and say, hey, I'm okay, you're okay, it's not okay. Because he goes on and he ends with, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that. You remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about this? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he calls us to perfection. And so what Jesus is doing in this section is he is covering all of these commands. He is clarifying them. And then he is calling us to fulfill them. And we can rejoice because the reason he came, the reason his name is Jesus. What is his name? Say it. What does his name mean? Do you remember in the beginning of Matthew? You shall call him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. He came not to abolish this law, but to do what? It's on the screen. To fulfill it. This bar that he has set for perfection that you and I will never meet, and by the way, will never be relaxed. Yes, we live in grace, absolutely, but that doesn't mean you get to rest on your laurels. He said, should we continue to sin that grace will abound? May it never be, right? So you, O Christian, are called to perfection. We just talked about this downstairs today, and so we make all these rules for ourselves in legalism to try to reach that. When in the end, what we really need to do is recognize our wretchedness, our depravity before a holy God who calls us to holiness and continuously die to self and live for Christ and rejoice in the fact that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill every jot, every dot, every iota, every tittle, whatever version you use, and that all of it would be accomplished, which is why on the cross, he said, it is finished. Yes, amen. Which leaves us today with your response. If you've been at church long enough, I'm sure you've heard so many sermons on this that I'm, I don't feel like spending an entire Sunday on it because this is up to you to read. But your response in this he gives two illustrations with a single agenda you are salt and light if you are a christian you are called to permeate preserve and flavor this world that you are stuck in for the present time if this is not your home you are passing through and on the way you should be flavoring everything that you touch That this is not your home, but on the way, you should be as if a lamp set on a stand that everybody, every single moth flying through the darkness of this world ought to see you and say, where did that light come from? And then you can point heavenward and say, it is from the Father, the Father of lights, who in whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow, who sent his son Christ Jesus, who would fulfill the law on my behalf, which is why you see anything good in me. So he says in Matthew 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth. You guys are going to click through this back there, Alistair. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. The standard for us is perfection. The reason He came is because we cannot complete it. And so therefore, our response ought to be one of joy and worship and praise and continuous striving, not out of legalism, but out of gratitude for a life that is above reproach so that every second of every day we can give glory to our Father as people look at us and we can say, it's because of Him. It's because of Him and the glory is to Him and the work is through Him and I am changed because of Him and if it were not for Him and you fill in the blank for you. Yes, that's a good spot for an amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We, we thank you for fulfilling the law. And not only just fulfilling the law, but fulfilling the law to the utmost degree, as you have said, until it is accomplished, until it is fulfilled, until it is completed. We thank you, Lord, for that righteousness, for your righteousness that you have imputed to our account, that you have deposited your righteousness to us. Those who were poor and needy and broken, that you have given us hope and peace and joy. Help us in response of these truths to be the salt and light of the world which you have created us to be. Help us to be the salt and light to a world which is in the same desperate state that we ourselves would be in without you. And help us to live in such a way as to continuously, with open arms, bring you glory and praise that those who see it might also obtain eternal life. Thank you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing a song.